It's great to hear these stories uh, from the mission field, from our, our covenant missionaries. We support five covenant missionaries right now, and uh, Tim, Tim and Helen are, are one of those five. And so it's great to hear these stories and hear what God is doing all around the world and to know that our support of them allows them, the way that, that your, your money, when you give to the ch- this church, are, we support them, these folks that are changing lives in the Congo, like Masamuko. What an amazing thing that we get to partner with, where we could never go into that community ourselves and, and just make this happen, but the long-term work of our missionaries allows lives to be changed, the gospel to go forth. What an incredible story. If you'd like to know more, if you'd like to get connected with Tim and Helen to get on their newsletter list, look at their blog, um, all those resources are back there. We can certainly get you that information. At the end of the service, we will be uh, collecting a a retiring offering uh, that will be going to the ministries uh, in the Congo uh, in support of Tim and Helen. So thank you for uh, checking out this story. And if you'd like to know more, all those resources are available. This morning, as we uh, turn to God's Word now, which I feel like we've already got a mini-sermon. I mean, it's like, how do you follow that up? Like, this guy whose life was changed where he's laying in bed with malaria, and he's like, heck, I'm going 20 kilometers down because i got to tell people about Jesus. Like, maybe that's just enough. Maybe what I have to say is garbage compared to that. Hopefully not. (laughs) Not garbage, but you just like, you know, what was the old line? Like, never follow dogs and kids. Anyway, it's not a dog or a kid, but it's a heck of a story about life change. We're, uh, we're looking at the Gospel of John for the next uh, few weeks before we enter the season of Lent. Before we enter the season of Lent, which is just a season of preparation for Easter. Preparation of Easter. And uh, Lent actually begins this year, uh, Ash Wednesday, February 14th. It's Valentine's Day is the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, where we'll have a service here. Uh, Lent is coming, though, and we're looking at the Gospel of John up until then. Last week, we looked at John 1. This week, we're looking at a story in John chapter 2, if you'd like to follow along. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to go ahead and read that story, and then just some observations and some things, some themes that are going on. I have to admit, this is probably the first time that I have uh, really taught on or preached this particular story. It was really fun for me to do some digging this week and kind of figure out beyond Jesus, because let's be honest, when I teach the water into wine story to kids, they get all excited. Like, Jesus is telling us we can party. Like, no, stop. Stop it. Jesus is not giving you permission to always drink the best stuff. Like, stop it. That's not the story. And I remember, like, for years in confirmation especially, we would go through the review and be like, hey, uh, anybody remember any of Jesus' miracles? And it was always like, water into wine. Like, that's not, why is that the first one that you have to remember? Stop it. So it was fun to dig into this and realize what is, what's going on? What's going on here more behind the scenes? What's going on here that's actually pointing to something deeper, something bigger, and that, that, that John wants us to see? If you remember last week, we talked about the purpose of John's gospel. John writes these stories. He says, I could have I told all kinds of stories, but I'm telling you these so that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you would have life in his name. So all the stories are pointing us, pointing you and I, the reader, the hearer, to life in Jesus. So what is it about this story, the water into wine, that's about life is found in Jesus? 
Here's the story. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the three buck chuck after. No, that's not in the text. Sorry. (laughs) Then the cheaper, the boxed wine after, the franzia. Wouldn't that be a good translation? Come on. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what's going on in this text? There's a lot of these uh, reference points that I don't want you to miss, and i got to say for years I had kind of missed them. But there's all these things that it's not really about that, it's actually about this. It's a sign. I love the, the way John says this is a sign, one of the first signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. So in the Gospel of John, what you understand about the Gospel of John, he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. He says these things that Jesus does that are in the category of miracle, they actually are signs. They point to something beyond what he's actually doing. Jesus was not a magician. These aren't magic acts. These aren't Jesus just going around. Like sometimes I imagine that as a kid, especially where Jesus is going around. He's like, oh, blind man, boom, healed. Check it out. What else do you want me to do? No, he does these things that are intentional. They're intentional because they point to something beyond what's actually happening. Certainly there is care for the person that he's healing, care for the people that he's feeding, feeding of the 5,000, but these things point beyond the actual event. This is why a lot of times when you read Scripture and you see Jesus heal something, something very confusing will happen after Jesus heals someone. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus will heal somebody and then he will say to them, don't tell anybody about this. Isn't that a confusing thing? Why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't Jesus just go around going like, boom, healed, bam, healed? You want to see rainfall? And everybody's like, oh my goodness, he is the Son of God. I mean, he could have just proven it. He just walked around doing whatever he wanted to do, walking on water, dancing on the water, doing whatever, and people would be like, oh my goodness, this guy. But that's not what he chose to do. So there's something else. There's something connected to the mission and ministry of who Jesus is and how he wants to reveal himself to people and ultimately the mission he's on that's going to the cross. It's going to the cross. He knows that, that he's going to the cross. And so on the third day of the wedding, he performs this sign. What is this sign about? What is it pointing to? There's a few observations I want to make. 
and, and then really sit with some questions that I think are tough for us, that, that we have to do some spiritual discerning today, some spiritual discerning about are we open to the new things God is doing in our lives, in our midst, in our world? Is it possible for God to do a new, a new thing? I read that text at the beginning from Isaiah, that God is doing a new thing. This The people could not they couldn't fathom this idea that God does new things. So we want to sit with some of these ideas this morning. First, I've mentioned it a couple times, and maybe you heard it in the text. Maybe you've never thought about this before. It's the third day of the wedding. Now, weddings in this culture would have been possibly a week-long event. For those of you who have funded a wedding recently, think about funding a week-long wedding. And then you're like, heck yeah, the wine's going to run out. Because I'm not about to put forward that kind of cash for people, my friends and family, those low-life students, no, anyway, who come and drink all the wine. But this is a week-long event, a week-long event, and it's on the third day where Jesus is going to perform a sign pointing to who he is. Think about another third-day event in the life of Christ. Another third-day event where he rises from the dead and shows that in him there is life. He's defeated death. And here we have another third day event. It's on the third day where his mother comes to him. You heard in the text, the wine has run out and this is a problem and it has to be fixed. Now what's going on with that? Why can't they just say like, hey, party's over, too bad. Nobody's drinking. You know, this this isn't the kind of culture either where you can just be like, hey, Jesus, run to the corner store and grab some more three-buck chuck like I suggested. Like you can't go down to Trader Joe's in Cana of Galilee, and grab a bunch more cases of wine and be like, whoo, problem solved. What would have happened in this culture is hospitality was just a high value. Hospitality was a high value. And so to run out of wine, the hosts, this could be shameful, disgraceful for these hosts who have invited all these people to the wedding. They've invited them all to the feast. They've invited them all to the celebration. And now they are going to look like bad hosts. Their hospitality has run out. And in this particular culture, this could be very shameful. So Jesus' mother comes to him. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, you have to do something about this. What an interesting thing, right? That she comes to Jesus when it's, we ran out of wine. It's like, you got to fix the problem. Now, there's some interesting connections to wine also from ancient cultures that I think we can still easily make these associations, but wine did not just represent a social lubricant. I love that I found that uh, language uh, in a, a commentary I was reading. It's not just a social lubricant, but wine represents, uh, it, it represents abundance. It represents the fact that there was a prosperous harvest, we, that, that God blessed us, and we were able to harvest enough that we made wine. It represents prosperity. It represents joy. It represents life. Life. Remember the purpose of John's gospel? That you might believe who Jesus is, who he said he was, and you might have life. Jesus uses this image in John 15 about being connected to the vine. Because those who are connected to the vine have life in Christ. So wine in this culture is not just representative of a a nice drink that you can have a party with your friends. 
but it represents abundance. It represents the fact that God blessed us with the harvest this year. It represents joy, and ultimately, it represents life. Life. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and says, we have a problem. The wine has run out. And Jesus responds, first off, I don't know where he's, I don't know if he's crossed a line here or not. I don't know about any of you if you've referred to your mother as woman or your, your spouse as woman. I don't know what he's doing. That's it. I'm, I'm not saying anything more about that. Again, it's not giving you all permission to talk this way, okay? One, you're not given permission to drink a whole bunch because Jesus does this water and wine thing. Two, you don't have permission to call women woman just because Jesus does. I don't know what he's doing there. He's the son of God. He gets to do what he wants, I guess. So here you go. But he says to her, why do you involve me? And then he says a very curious phrase. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. Jesus here is not referring to the fact like, hey, ask me in a couple hours because it'll be better. You know, if you ask me tomorrow, that'll be better timing for me. He's referring to, so there's this idea in, uh, in the Greek understanding, and I think all of us can understand this too. There's time that is chronological, like the hour of the day and chronological moves along. But then there's this idea of kairos time. Kairos time is that like opportune time. For such a time as this time, where Jesus is saying it's not, he's sensing, he knows what he came to do down the road on that third day, he'll rise again, he's going to go to the cross, he's going to rise again, he knows that's what he came to do, and he's telling her it's not time for me to reveal myself yet. It's not the opportune time. And isn't it interesting that Mary says, yeah, it is, do what he tells you to do. What kind of power does it, I mean, I don't know. I'm saying maybe the Catholics have something right on this one, that she is a pretty important person, because Jesus is like, woman, it's not my time. And she's like, yeah, 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 sure, buddy, do what he tells you to do. And he's like, okay, mom. I mean, I don't know. This is an interesting story. That's an interesting interchange. Again, like last week we were saying, like, what really happens in between all the lines that, that John tells us? What happened there? Where, where the Son of God is saying, like, no, Mom, you don't get it. It's not my time. And she says, yeah, it is. And he does it. And he does it. Okay, I'm, I don't even have any idea where I'm at in my notes. I'm just talking at this point. But... My hour has not yet come. There's an interesting quote that I ran across about this, 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 this idea of your hour, this opportune time. What does that look like and what's going on in the interchange between Jesus and his mother where he's saying it's not my time and she's saying this could be a time to reveal yourself. This could be an opportunity to reveal yourself. And Jesus steps into, as one author said, our kairos moments, these opportune times. They happen at the intersection of our mangled plans and our spiritual openness. I thought that was pure gold when I came across this. That the times where God might interrupt us, these kairos moments, these, no, this is the time. 
This is your time to do something that points people to Jesus, that points people to who he is, that points people to life found in Christ, that points people to the fact that God is about abundance. God is about blessing. God is about joy. These these times, they come in our lives. They come even in Jesus' life at a point where mangled plans intersect with spiritual openness. I'm guessing Jesus didn't go to that wedding thinking, oh, I'm about to blow this thing up. We're about to have a party. I'm just guessing by the interchange with the, the interaction with his mother that that was not on his radar. That he wasn't there like, yeah, watch. They're gonna run out of wine and it's gonna be so cool what I'm about to do. But that no, he has this opportunity where his mother says, could you do something about this? Could you help these people not to be disgraced? Could you help these people who have gathered in joyful celebration? Weddings are just fun, right? And can you imagine if you're in the middle of a wedding and it just, sorry everybody, like, we just gotta pull the plug on the music and you're like, I thought we were gonna go for it. No, done, over. You thought there was dinner? Guess again, get out of here. You, you would be embarrassed if you were the host and something like that happened. And Jesus enters this situation and he didn't intend to do this. It, it seems like from the text he didn't even maybe necessarily want to do this. But the opportunity comes at that intersection of mangled plans and spiritual openness. How many of us have plans? We've, we've laid it all out. We decided when I go to work today, this is what my entire day will look like and it's all planned out. Now maybe there's going to be interruptions, but you pretty much know day to day what your work life might look like. I I pretty much know. But there are moments where where something changes. Are you open to the idea that that God might be putting that coworker who has something they want to talk to you about, that that might be an opportunity to, to listen Maybe not to say anything, but to listen, to hear them, to be the first person that hears what's going on in their life. Mangled plans, spiritual openness. You know, maybe it's not at work, but maybe you've made plans for the weekend. Maybe you've you've made all kinds of plans with what family is going to look like, with work life is going to look like, and somehow, someway, something happens and you just go, whoa, what is this? Is this from God? And you have to enter into a discernment process and understand, is this from God? And listen to friends and and listen to God's word and decide, is God moving in this? I imagine that, now Jesus has a little bit of a one-up on us being Jesus and all. But I imagine there's this moment where he's going, oh, what does it mean for me to do this miracle, this sign right here in this place, when I know that there's... There's so much more that I'm supposed to be doing. Spiritual openness. I remember, I believe I've told this story before, but uh, I used to coach high school football, and I I remember, like, it was always this dance of how much am I supposed to talk about Jesus and what I do for work and and that kind of stuff with the kids. And I remember uh, after a game one time, a, a kid that was from my youth group that I knew really well, he had just played, like, the worst game of his life, and he had kind of, like, single handedly blown it for the team like he was you know the defensive back who's out there on an island all by himself and like three touchdowns right by him 
And it was like the week where I think it was a, a grandparent had passed away. And so he had like, you know, dedicated the game for the grandparent and then just played. It just was obvious he played bad. And so he was just weeping in the locker room. And all the other guys had left and he's just weeping. And I remember uh, standing with the, the head coach and it was just this kind of moment like, I know this kid from a church relationship too. What, what is appropriate for me to do right now? You know, usually after the games, I would just take off. I don't need hanging out in the locker room and talk. I'd just take off. So I'm sitting there and I'm observing that this kid is just bawling. And the other coach grabs me and says, like, hey, would you come over there and pray with me and him? And it's like, seriously, are we going to do this right now in a high school locker room? Like, this is, and it was just this moment where there was some spiritual openness for all of us to gather around this kid who was hurting. Mangled plans spiritual openness. What does it look like to step into those moments? To step into those moments in our life where there's an opportunity for you, for me, to to represent Jesus or to point people to Jesus, to life, to life in Christ. And so Jesus says, he, he takes this opportunity. He takes this opportunity and he notices these stone jars so first off, if we, if we have something that's kind of a theme of, of pointing to, to something beyond this actual event, it's what wine represents. Remember, wine represents life. It represents abundance. That God has blessed the harvest. It represents joy. And now Jesus looks at these stone jars. And you notice that, again, John is specific about why he tells you details. The third day, it's wine. And now he says, he sees these stone jars, and these stone jars are the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. This isn't a throwaway statement. John notices these jars, and he says, these are the ones that they would use for ceremonial washing. This is a part of the system, the religious system, where they cleanse themselves before they go and eat. And Jesus uses these, these representation of a system that people had good intentions. They were trying to be right with God, to be pure, to be clean. These are not bad things. Sometimes we criticize the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Sometimes we criticize them in the Bible, and, and, and sometimes I think it's unfair because they're doing their best to honor God. But in doing their best to honor God, they miss some things. They miss some things that Jesus is trying to reveal. That Jesus is trying to reveal to them that they, they miss the life, the abundance, in creating rules, rules that would shape their relationship with God. And so he sees these stone jars that represent kind of the religious order of the day to a certain extent. Don't go too far with this, but to a certain extent. And in, in using these particular stone jars and, and using those to change the water into the wine, Jesus says, God is doing something new. At least that's what I think is going on here. I read this from numerous sources this last week as I, as I studied this text, thinking about what does it mean? What is, the, again, the point beyond what's actually happening? What is it actually a sign of? What is this a pointing to? That Jesus is pointing here at the beginning of his ministry. He takes these stone jars and he says, God is doing something new. 
And God is doing something new in, the, in him, through him, through Jesus. Now, Jesus has had uh, some other interactions with the religious order of his day. He, he has other interactions specifically around these purity washing things. There's a time where the Pharisees come and they ask him in Matthew 15, we want to know why your followers, why your followers, why they're not cleaning their hands, why they're not doing this ritual cleansing thing before they eat. They're confused because again, this is part of their religious system is wrapped up in this is what it means to be in right relationship with God. Observing the Torah, observing the law so that we can be in It's well-intentioned. And Jesus has these interactions about, it's not, he says in Matthew 15, listen, it's not about what goes in someone's mouth that defiles them or makes them unclean, but it's about the things that are coming out of a person that can give life to others. And so Jesus uses these stone pots that represent kind of the religious system of the day, the, maybe the old system. And Jesus is saying, I'm making things new. Again, it reminds me, this whole scene reminds me of Isaiah 43, what I read for you earlier. In Isaiah chapter 43, the people of God have been hauled off to Babylon. Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple has been ransacked. And the people, if you read some of the Psalms, the people are just saying like, God, did you forget about us? They're they're pretty hopeless at this point. And they're wondering as they're in exile, is God still around? Is God still going to bless us? Is God still going to save us? Where are you, God? And Isaiah utters these words. He says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. You see, people in exile, all they could think about is what would it look like? What's it going to take to have to rebuild Jerusalem, to have to rebuild the temple? They're thinking about the old ways. They're stuck in that. God can't do anything if we don't have the temple. We're sunk. God surely has left us if we don't have those religious structures of the past. And so they're all, they're they're giving up. They're they're kind of giving up and, and here Isaiah comes and says, don't dwell on those things. See, I am doing a new thing. This is a radical thing. This is a radical thing to speak into a faith community. There's some of you probably when you hear the idea that God is going to do a new thing, they're like, wait a second, God is unchanging. God is the same as he's always been. That's That's not on the table for argument. But the idea that God does fresh things, that the Spirit is moving in fresh ways. Are you spiritually open to that? God is doing a new thing. He says, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. Wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. I'm doing a new thing. I wonder if those folks who knew what Jesus had just done, providing drink for the thirsty, 
streams in the wilderness, if they didn't, if something didn't click, and for them to think, oh, God is doing a new thing through this person, Jesus, God is doing a new thing. I I love these interactions in Scripture that, that reveal that in and through the person of Jesus Christ, God is up to something new, and we can't miss it. I don't want you to miss it. And there's this question of Jesus, like, why don't your disciples do this thing? And and to a certain extent, Jesus is saying, because God is doing a new thing. Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? You know that that's like illegal, right? God is doing a new thing. The the disciples of Jesus, they go and they they say, man, even the, you're never going to believe this, even the Gentiles, that's people like us, even those dirty, disgusting, pagan Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit. And the people at that time, I'd be like, I don't know about that. God is doing a new thing. Throughout the centuries, people have wrestled with ideas, wrestled with things. In our own nation's history, a serious wrestling with what, is, what do we do with this institutional slavery? What do we do with that? And as people started saying, like, break those chains, it was clear that God was doing a new thing. That God was up to something new. Why was a person like Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian pastor, what is his deal what, you know, going and marching in the streets and fighting for civil rights? Like, just if everybody could just stay in their lane, wouldn't we? No, God was doing something new. What is God doing today? What is the new thing? that God is up to. What is it? There's some questions that I I, want to leave us with for you to think about in relation to to this text of, of Jesus coming and saying, God is here to provide life. The old way has passed. He's coming with some new, fresh movements of the Spirit. I had to ask myself this week, am I spiritually open? Am I actually open to the idea that God might do something fresh? Are you spiritually open to the idea that God might do something fresh in and through you, in and through me, in and through us together? Or or do we need to hear that word from Isaiah again? Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. We're not going back to Jerusalem with the temple, we're not going there. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to lead you in a new way. What does that look like? I challenge you, I invite you to pray over that, to search the scriptures about what is God doing in our midst? What is that new thing? Not that we just run over here and then say, God, come and and affirm where I'm going. No, where is God moving so we can join him? So we can join him in the new thing he's doing. There's a question I ran across this week that somewhat haunted me because it's a challenging question. The question said, what will, what, what will have to be crucified before the church reaches the third day potential of new life? I'm going to say that again because it's a little bit confusing. What will or what needs to be crucified before the church reaches the third day potential of new life. 
What are those idols? What are those things we're hanging on to where we're saying, no, 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 this is the system. This is how it works. This is the way it's always been that we actually need to let go of and say, that was for a season. That was for a time. But now there's a new hour. There's a new time. There's an opportunity for God not to box God in and say, you have to work that way, God, or we're not going with you. But to say, Lord, where are you leading us? So what do we have to let go of so that we can experience that third day, new life, resurrection life, wedding at Cana, third day life, that represents abundance, joy, celebration, life. Friends, the truth is God might mangle your plants. Actually, He will mangle your plants. Are you spiritually open to step into that moment? Join together with God in what He's doing in that moment that you might see this kind of life that those who were at this party experienced. Are you spiritually open? Am I spiritually open? Would you pray with me? God, these stories, you could talk on and on about these stories that you've given us in your word. These stories of your son walking the earth, bringing joy to people. God, at every, every turn, every interaction, Jesus is bringing joy, bringing life. God, would it be the same with us? Would, would our interactions with people bring them joy? Bring them life? God, we confess that there are times where we are grumpy, we are cynical, we are apathetic, we are all of the above, that, that we read the headlines, we get caught up in what's going on in politics or in the world, and, and we just get discouraged and grumpy. And we confess, Lord, it's easier to gather around a table and complain and get caught up in complaining than getting caught up in bringing joy, bringing life, bringing hope. God, transform the way we understand our role in this world. Transform the way we see our coworkers, our family members, our neighbors, our classmates. Help us, Lord, to be spiritually open to conversation with these friends, to lead them closer to you. Lord, help us see what we're holding on to. What it is we're holding on to where we need to let go that you might do something new and, and you might blow our minds with the new life, the fresh movement of the Spirit that we can experience and we can be a part of. God, we're asking, we're asking for your help, for your Spirit's voice to be loud in our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?